I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are with Dr. Keith Augustus Burton, professor of uh, religion at Advent Health University and the author of The Blessing of Africa, The Bible, and African Christianity. Also, he was chosen by the magazine Christianity Today as one of the top 25 religious figures who have shaped African-American faith over the last century. That's 100 years. So, Dr. Burton, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. Can I call you Dennis? Yeah, yes, please. Okay. And, and, and you can call me Keith. That's fine, too. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. okay, great. So, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So, um, I was actually born in London, England, of uh, um, Jamaican parents, uh, almost, goodness, almost six decades ago. So, I've been around for a while. And came to the United States to go to college, actually, back in 1984. Never thought I'd stay, but years later, here I am. And so um, after getting my undergraduate degree from um, Oakwood College, uh, that's in Huntsville, Alabama, and that was sort of a a shock coming from London to (laughs) rural Alabama, but I was there. So I got my my undergrad degree from there, then went on to the Chicago area, Evanston, Illinois, got my master's in theological studies from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. That's a Methodist seminary um, in Evanston and a PhD from Northwestern in the joint Garrett Northwestern um, program. And uh, my PhD is in New Testament interpretation and classical rhetoric. Uh, But uh, even though that's my narrow area of study, and I do do some research in those areas, I also have a very, very strong history, not history, sorry, very, very strong interest, (laughs) you know, in history and um, Black cultural studies, etc. And so uh, my um, academic work, you know, sort of covers that whole gamut. And you've also been involved in interfaith work. Can you oh, tell absolutely. us a little bit about that? Yes, yes, yes. And so uh, with my interfaith exposure, of course, growing up in England, um, very interfaith environment there. And so my best friends um, in school, for instance, I had a Hindu, a Muslim, um, Greek Orthodox, a Catholic. And, you know, so just so that, that, that was part of my induction into interfaith. Uh, but while I was working at Oakwood University, it's an um, historically black school in Huntsville, Alabama. In fact, the school that I came to do my undergraduate, I was asked to come back there to teach. And um, whilst I was there, I was asked to um, start an initiative uh, with um, the Muslim population, actually. And so I founded the Center for Adventist Muslim Relations. And uh, we had several initiatives, one of which is um, a documentary, which has been fully filmed and edited, but it's still not um, <laughs> been published yet in a sense. But that's on the biblical prophets of the Quran, uh, where we have a lot of notable uh, Muslim theologians and Christian theologians participating in that. And um, also had an annual lectureship called the Hal al-Kitab um, lecture series. And the Hal al-Kitab lecture series uh, features the, uh, what we call the, the portions of the Quran uh, that basically speak about Christians as being the people of the book, you know, and so I had a number of um, some notable uh, Muslim scholars come down and share with that. And by the grace of God, getting involved with the Huntsville Interfaith Mission Service and um, other entities, uh, I was fortunate to be awarded 
with the Rabbi Jeffrey Bannon Interfaith Memorial Award um, from the Huntsville Interfaith Mission Service, and uh, which was sort of ironic, you know, um, a Christian getting an award for his work with Muslims, um, and the award is named for a Jew, you know, and so that was a, a wonderful um, gift and honor, you know, and, and uh, also, also had a wonderful Again, this is something that I did not find out about till after the fact. I'm not even sure how I found out about it, but I found out um, sometime about two years after it happened that an article I wrote on the Charlie Hebdo um, incident, you know, the shooting over there in France, um, actually received an award of merit from the Associated Church Press. And again, so that's another, you know, one of those interfaith moments that, again, nothing I was looking for. Uh, but it's always good to know that uh, your work is recognized in those areas. Yes, it's good to be appreciated. Yes, All right, sir. well, let's um, dive right in um, to the material um, surrounding your book. What was your inspiration and purpose in writing The Blessing of Africa? Yeah, you know, um, I'm a lifetime Christian. You know, I uh, grew up in church and you know, um, my my family was Seventh-day Adventist, but of course I have many, many different exposures. I, you know, so growing up, my father would visit out of Pentecostal church and different things. And so I got that exposure and I, my oldest brother's a Baptist and my uh, grandmother grew up Methodist and my great-grandmother was Anglican, etc. You know, and so with all of this, um, I found myself sitting in church sometimes, particularly in England, and wondering why the church, which became majority Black, it wasn't that that, that way when I was young. I, I remember my first members of church, there were just a few Black folk in the church. And by the time I get to a teenager, there were just a few white folk in the church. But the worship was the same, you know? And the symbolism was the same. When I looked around the stained glass window, I started wondering if Christianity was something uh, for Black people. And so as a teenager, um, I remember um, deciding that church wasn't really for me. And so even though living in my parents' house, I kind of had to go, but I found uh, my identity more with Rastafarianism and kind of sneaking out my parents' house on Friday nights and Saturday nights until I was sleeping, uh, going to sort of the, the dance halls, um, not necessarily to meet ladies, but that's where sort of the strong Rastafarian theology was being pounded out through the music. Mm. And so that's basically where I found my identity. And then, of course, also, um, my father had a couple of books in the library. Uh, one I remember, you know, Your your God is Too White, another one on Black Man's Religion, etc. And, and, you know, I, I, I just kind of was drawn to those things, trying to find out why it is that um, in a religion that doesn't seem to speak to me. And um, then hearing some things, you know, from the pulpits, I still remember uh, there was a missionary that came to our church uh, when I was a teenager, young teenager, and um, showed some videos from the mission field in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and there was some women with Afros, and when they were demon-possessed, you know, they would cut a little... Uh, 
the hole in the afro sort of thing so the demons could come out and I remember my my mother was growing an afro at the time and the missionary said you know you sh- no one should have afro. this is a white white missionary saying no one should have afro you know and so my my mother of a sudden decided she was no longer going to have a afro because someone said that it was demonic you know so she was demons mm-hmm. and so these are some of the things that were sort of crowd in my mentality that I began to ask myself, what is this Christianity thing? You know, why is it that everything associated with black culture seems to be demonized in a sense? And then um, here in some of the other myths, like um, the curse of Ham, you know, and hearing people talk about the curse of Ham, and even being in settings where I would hear black people thanking God for slavery, because if it were not for slavery, we would not have learned about Christianity, etc. You know, so I thank God for slavery. And so so these kind of things just 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 had me wondering, you know, what is this thing? And so when I began to uh, look at the Bible deeper than surface level, and I began to recognize certain things in the Bible, and I said, wait a minute, you know, um, where is Egypt? And where is this? Where is it? You know, and 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 all of a sudden, I started looking at the Bible differently. And so. Um, I started to do some lectures when I started teaching on the university level. I started lecturing uh, on the Bible sort of from an African context. And I was also privileged to be a part of a project by the late Dr. Charles Bradford looking at um, Christianity in Africa, et cetera. And um, I found myself just, you know, uncovering things that I had not seen before, looking at things through new eyes. And so um, after a while, I noticed I had a number of lectures in this area and I thought, hmm, you know, I think I have enough for a book, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I approached university and, you know, uh, got a prospectus together. And uh, by the grace of God, you know, their editorial committee um, decided it was something that they wanted to move forward with. And it, it took about four or five years before I actually finished um, this particular project, you know. But um, the reason for writing uh, was to sort of, uh, well, actually two twofold. Um, first, I was thinking about, the many young Black people, particularly Black men like I, who had the types of questions and sort of left Christianity permanently uh, to join the Nation of Islam and other groups and developed this narrative that was really reacting against what I believe to be a distorted biblical interpretation than what the Bible itself was saying. And so basically, that's one of the reasons why I wrote to basically say, hey, you know, step back take a look at what the Bible is really saying. Don't believe the lies. For instance, the whole thing about the curse of Ham, for instance, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about the curse of Ham. <laughs> you know, there's a curse of Canaan, but not a curse of Ham. You know? And so um, just basically, uh, j- just kind of looking at those things that uh, cause a lot of uh, young Black men specifically to turn their backs on Christianity. And number two, um, for the general population, not just looking in a narrow sense at the Black community, but for everyone to say, hey, you know, some things we do need to rethink. For instance, when we look at Christianity um, as it is positioned today, many people will think that oh, Christianity started in Norway, <laughs> you know. And so basically just um, saying, hey, you know, there, there there's more to this Christianity thing. There's a there's a global aspect of Christianity. And even, you know, I actually teach a church history class now and um, I approach it from what I call a concentric rather than a linear history. So a linear history, it kind of jumped from Jerusalem to Rome and whatever else, right? But a concentric history, you're starting at the center and seeing how it moves to all the continents and, you know, uncovering such things um, like the presence 
of Christianity in India and China in the fourth and fifth centuries, you know, um, entrenched presence of Christianity, things that people don't usually think about, and especially the African contribution uh, to Christianity, particularly when it comes to the um, entrenched Christian doctrines, those things that uh, we hold there, like Doctrine of the Trinity, etc., how they were okay. formulated um, on what we call the African continent. Okay, good. Well, why don't we uh, move into then, how do you define biblical Africa? This might great be a little question. different than some people <laughs> would expect. Yeah, great, great, great question. And, you know, that, that, that might seem on one level to be a simple question, but of course, as you've read the book, uh, you see that I use Africa uh, basically as a malleable term. And so when we look at the history of the word Africa, it's first applied to what we call the African continent uh, during the Punic Wars. Um, after uh, Scipio uh, Africanus um, defeated uh, the Carthaginians, you know, the most famous of which, of course, was Hannibal. And um, they referred to that, that province as, as Africanus. This was the Roman province of Africa. And uh, based upon uh, the fact that it moved from that province and we now apply it to the entire continent, and, and I say continent, quote unquote, because even that is sort of um, an imperially defined, um, you, you know, geographical location when we talk about a continent. Why is it that the African continent um, stops at the Suez Canal when the Suez Canal uh, was something that didn't come into being until the 20th century, you know? So all of a sudden, like, Africa, okay, something else up there, right? And so, and, and, and so I challenged the use of terms. And so... I use the term Africa as a synonym to the land of Ham. So in a sense, I'm, I'm appropriating language that's been used and imagined because usually uh, when we think about Ham in religious, at least Christian circles, we're thinking about the descendants of Ham, which most people say, okay, descendants of Ham are Africans in a sense, right? And so I said, okay, let's, let's play with this. And so we have Ham, if Ham is Africa, all right, and, um, and, 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 and Africa is a malleable term, all right, uh, let me uh, look at a pre-Roman understanding of Africa and apply it to the land of Ham. And so using them as synonyms, and of course, in the book, I'm very clear that I'm using it as an organizing principle. So I'm not saying this is what the Asians actually called it, but using it as an organizing principle. When I look at the land of Ham or biblical Africa, I uh, determine the boundaries thereof uh, from Genesis chapter 10, uh, which I call a literary map or a literary cartograph, right? And so we have um, Genesis chapter 10, which uh, talks about the three sons of Noah and the places uh, to which their descendants dispersed. And so when I look at um, the places where the descendants of Ham dispersed, I look, for instance, you know, he has these um, four sons. There's uh, Misraim, that's Egypt, Cush, that's Ethiopia, uh, Canaan, and also Put. And I call put is the enigmatic one. The word put's only used twice in scripture. We really don't know where put is. And so, um, and again, I say in the book, and I'm using this as an organizing principle. So I look at put as sort of um, an, an, an organizing term for sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, right? And um, so when we look at the territories occupied 
uh, by the descendants of um, Kush, for instance. Uh, these include, uh, of course, Kush proper, right, which would be Ethiopia, but all of his descendants, at least those um, with which we can align a modern geographical uh, place, um, are all outside of our, our African continent, you know, our modern African continent. And so Shabtakar and Havala and Sheba, et cetera, they're all in Saudi Arabia. And then even when you look at the offspring of Kush, so, sorry, offspring of Nimrod, sorry, Nimrod son of Kush, um, two of his most uh, famous offspring were Asher and Babal. That's a Syria and Babylon going all the way up to Iraq. Okay, if again, we're looking at it as a strict reading of where these people actually settled. And then when we look at Misraim, uh, Egypt, you know, Lubim, that's uh, Libya, all right? And so it's not just, again, what we call Egypt today, uh, but we're looking at Libya, Kaftor, island of Crete, all right? And everything. So these are where the offspring, according to Genesis chapter 10, these are where the offspring settled. So with um, Canaan, uh, Canaan is the easiest um, to define in the sense that uh, Canaan is basically static, it's been static over the years. And so we know, for instance, where Syria is, where Palestine and Israel and, you know, um, Lebanon, et cetera. And of course, we have um, South Central um, uh, Turk, Turkey, that's where one of the Antiochs were in that era there, that we all part of uh, Canaan. But what, what what's also interesting about Canaan, however, uh, the people with whom we normally associate Canaan are the Philistines. But according to the Bible, the Philistines are the descendants of the Chalcidites, and the Chalcidites actually come from Mitzrayim, actually come from Egypt. And so even though they were settled in Canaan, you know, um, from the perspective of Genesis chapter 10, they originated in Egypt, you know. And so, um, yeah, so again, the land of Ham, uh, based upon Genesis chapter 10, is what informs my understanding of what I call biblical Africa. Okay, okay, that's good to understand then. And so what do we need to know about Africa in terms of how it was prepared for early Christianity and then how it grew throughout yeah. these regions? Yeah, and so so, um, so based upon my understanding of uh, biblical Africa, as, again, expanded beyond the borders of our modern continent of Africa, including what some today call MENA, you know, M-E-N-A, the Middle East and North Africa. So expanding uh, to that area, um, I would say that uh, everything in the Bible from uh, the book of Genesis through the middle of Acts is actually set in biblical Africa, you know? And so, again, working under that framework, um, Christianity would have been born in biblical Africa. It was born right there in Canaan. All right, we look at the region of Israel, you know, um, even if we're going to use sort of modern understandings of Africa, at least for a while when Abraham came out of Ur, you know, uh, went down as far south as, 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 as Egypt, okay, remember when he was passing his, his um, wife of his, as his sister, even though some may say, well, she also was a sister, but <laughs> besides the point, but it's there. Then also the 400 years, you know, the story of Joseph as such. Most of Genesis, um, half of Exodus, and such. And so, and so, uh, from that perspective, even if we were just to look at Africa in the modern understanding of Africa, uh, then uh, we see 
that um, at least biblical religion uh, was practiced in those areas. Now, if we take it now to my understanding of biblical Africa and the territory of the land of Ham, then we see that Christianity would have been born in that area. And we see as um, Christianity develops, for instance, uh, that even though the portion of Africa in which Christianity was born, if we look at those who followed Jesus Christ, would have been Canaan, all right? When we look at the later development of Christianity in the first few centuries, uh, we see that two of the four major centers of Christianity uh, were um, on our modern African continent. And so um, three of them were in what I call biblical Africa. And so you have, for instance, Carthage, uh, which is, you know, sort of Tunisia, that area over there. You have Carthage, um, you have Alexandria, all right, which is in Egypt. And then, uh, of course, you also have Jer Jer Jerusalem. And um, well, actually, one could also, because there was also a school in Antioch, you know, further north, et cetera. And of course, later on, we have Rome and some other areas. And so when we look at um, the development of Christianity, particularly when it comes to uh, Christian doctrine, uh, we see that some of the early thinkers, we're talking about, you know, uh, St. Augustine, talk about Oregon. Tertullian, Didymus. Uh, we're looking at even, you know, the, the, the Aryan controversy, you know, in the fourth century, the whole, whole thing about was Jesus created? Is he the same as the father? Equal to the father? Was he, you know, and, and so looking at that controversy, um, the two major voices in that controversy were Arius and Athanasius. Both of them, both of them were clergy people and theologians from Egypt. Okay, uh, when we look at the first time the term Trinity is used in Christian history, it's framed by an African theologian. And my brain is going a little fuzzy right now, it's Oregon or Tertullian, but one of those was the first ones um, to term the coin Trinity, all right? To coin the term, did I say term to coin, but to coin the term <laughs> Trinity, all right? Yeah, so, so, anyway. so, <laughs> so um, when it comes to uh, the, the contribution of uh, Africa to Christianity. We see that it's there at the foundation. And there's an interesting book that InterVarsity published um, shortly after mine, actually. Um, uh, Thomas Oden's, uh, right. uh, one might forget in Thomas Oden's book, and they, they, they actually designed it similar to how they designed mine. Uh, but um, Thomas Oden, he's the Methodist scholar who edited the, um, uh, the, commentary series, the Asian Christian commentary on the Bible. I know I didn't say it right, but anyway, I got them back here. But yeah. And so Thomas Oden, how Africa shaped the Christian mind. I think that's that I think that's what he called right, it. That sounds right. Yeah, right. Yes. Yes. And so so um he he basically and and his basic thing, Thomas Oden, he was saying, as he's writing this um, Asian Christian commentary on scripture, um, ex excellent series, he's thinking, wait a minute, this person's, this, this, this. and after that, he's saying, oh my goodness, so many of these um, theologians that contributed to understanding of Christianity were located on the, on, on you know, our, our modern African continent. Because of course, he's, he's not 
operating with the same understanding of Africa as I am, a more expanded uh, understanding of biblical Africa. But even uh, from the modern continental understanding of Africa, he's like, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, why haven't we emphasized this before? And hence um, his work, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. All right. And so uh, a few centuries later, Islam comes around. So how was Christianity, um, what sort of Christianity did it have on Islam? And, and then likewise, how did Christianity with the Crusades, etc.? Wow. Um, how did they affect <laughs> each other? And it's yeah. a huge topic. This is worth volumes, but <laughs> your thoughts. Oh, my, oh my goodness. Dennis. So, so when, when it comes to Christianity and is Islam, and again, and of course, how it relates to biblical Africa too, because of course, Islam um, comes to birth on the Arabian Pen- Peninsula, which, of course, going back to Genesis chapter 10, okay, this was originally populated, according to Genesis, uh, by the sons of Cush, all right? And so in that sense, looking at the expanded understanding of biblical Africa being the land of Ham, um, Arabia would be, um, you know, uh, a Hamitic, you know, nation in a sense, right? And parts of it, parts of it would be what I call semi-Hamitic. And that's a whole other story. But um, here we have, the, you know, the main uh, body, the main peninsula is Hamitic. So when we look at this area then, um, Muhammad, uh, uh, and I'm not going to rehearse all of his biography in a sense, but Muhammad. Uh, grew up, was born, he was orphaned, he was very young, uh, born and grew up in an area um, on the Arabian Peninsula that was very close to a couple of major Christian centers, Christian and Jewish centers, Himyar and Himra. And um, he was also a traveling uh, salesperson, all right, and um, or traveling trader. And of course, he uh, married the business owner, you know, <laughs> and so uh, after a while, I guess he was co-owner of the caravan. Um, but um, he did a lot of travels up to Jerusalem in different areas. And so uh, he would have been very familiar with the Christian stories. And also in Arabia, in fact, um, I forget which early church theologian referred to Arabia as the mother of heresies, right? There were so many different new understandings of Christianity just flourishing in the Arabian Peninsula. And so uh, Muhammad would have been familiar with all of these. And in fact, when we look at the Quran, for instance, particularly um, the narratives uh, relating to the young Jesus, uh, when Jesus in the cradle uh, being able to talk and being able to heal people from the cradle and everything else and taking clay and telling the clay to fly and it gets wings and flies away, you know, and uh, a person who doesn't know the history of Christianity they may look and say, oh, why is he inventing all these things? Well, you know, the infancy gospel of Thomas has the same stories, you know, and so there were Christians groups um, in that region uh, who were teaching the same thing and saying that, you know, this was part of the real gospel, all right? Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the Quran and um, we see that uh, what appears appears, uh, is going on there uh, is uh, this person who's coming, uh, claiming to get these uh, visions from the angel Gabriel, uh, calls him Jibril, uh, Gabriel, but when we look at the content of the Quran, uh, we see that you cannot really understand the Quran without understanding the Bible. And so in Al-Baqarah, for instance, the second 
uh, book of the Quran of the 252 verses. You know, it's a very, very long. And, and um, when you look at Al-Baqarah, you're looking at the stories of Adam and Eve. You're looking at um, Abraham's sacrifice of his son. And by the way, does it name the son? And so uh, you have some people saying, oh, well, you know, they believe it was Ishmael. You know, everything like this. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, that's not what the Quran says. Okay, so the Quran assumes that the person knows the stories. All right. And of course, when you get to Al-Maryam and Al-Imran, this is um, uh, Surah 5 and Surah 19, you know, um, you see very strong allusions to the Gospel of Luke. It's, 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 it's all there. And so when we look at Christians, Christianity, sorry, its influence on um, Islam, uh, we see it very much in the Quran itself, but then also in what um, Muslim scholars will call the first Hijra. And so Hijra, that's, uh, or Hijra or Hijra, that's the Arabic word for flight. And um, the beginning of the, Christ, of, of the Muslim year, sorry, uh, is um, our Christian year 622. And that's year zero for Muslims, because that's the year when Muhammad uh, would have made the trek from Mecca to Yathrib or to Medina. All right, and this is the beginning of the so of, 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 of the Muslim calendar. And um, when we look at why this happened, it was happening because Muhammad and his followers were experiencing persecution um, from the tribe of his family because he was teaching you should only worship one God, and they had 365 gods. People would travel from all over to be with the Karyash. That's, that was his tribe, the Karyash. And, you know, they're making a whole lot of money from these gods, you know. And Muhammad saying, no, 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 there's only one God. And, and um, of course, they're like, no, 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 you're hurting, you're hurting our business. <laughs> we can't have this, you know. And so they began persecuting those um, who followed his teacher because he began to get very, very influential. And so we speak about the Hijra, 622, but Muslim scholars would talk about the first Hijra. And the first Hijra were the followers of Muhammad who had to flee, not to, not to Medina, but they fled from um, uh, Mecca to Ethiopia, Abyssinia, okay? And so they fled to Abyssinia because they were being persecuted. And the leaders in Mecca, the Karyash leaders, they basically um, sent an extradition order <laughs> to Ethiopia, to the Nagus in Ethiopia. Nagus would be the king in Ethiopia. And um, so the Nagus calls the followers of Muhammad to his court. Because remember, at this time, Ethiopia um, is a fully entrenched, you know, Christian nation, been Christian since the fourth century. And so uh, calls them to his court and begins to interrogate them before he extradites them. And he asks them specific questions about what they believe about Jesus and, and his mother Mary. Because, of course, Ethiopian Christianity is very orthodox, a very strong emphasis on, on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And um, the, uh, how they answered him, yes, we, 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 we believe in Jesus, we, his mother Mary, etc. And the Negus basically said, hmm, you sound as Christian as we are. And they basically sent a message to the Karish back in Mecca, say, we will not extradite these people. Okay? And so, again, 
um, we're looking at a time in Christianity, because again, we're going to look at Christianity, the historical development of Christianity. Even today, Christians are united. There's never been a time, from, from biblical days, if you look at um, what Paul says in First Timothy and other places, there's always been division in Christianity. And, and the same was true at the time of Muhammad, when there were so many, many different factions of Christianity. It was very easy uh, for people to look at Islam as just another version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my theory is that that's one of the reasons why Islam was able to catch root in North Africa so quickly, because there were so many philosophical discussions taking place about the nature of Christ, homoousios, homoousios, and uh, whether it's hypostasis, or, you know, there's so many things coming on there that, um, Muhammad came along and says, okay, just worship one, one God, Allah, 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 there is the one. There is one, no God but God. And 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 what I believe is that many people say, ah, forget about the theology and the philosophy. Let's just follow this guy over here, you know. And then so, if you look. So. What happened then? I mean, as Islam <laughs> took um, power and grew and grew and spread throughout the region, what happened to the church that was was okay. strong throughout North Africa? Yes. And so 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 what what happens now when we look at the earliest days of of um Islam, very similar to the early days of Christianity. Because remember the early days of Christianity when Paul went to a new town, was went to a synagogue. Okay, and we look at the book of Acts. The um the the early Christians still went to the temple. Okay. And Paul in 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 Acts chapter 20, you know, he he goes to the temple and 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 make sacrifice, etc. Even after he is Paul, uh, this great, you know, um, uh, evangelist for, for Jesus Christ, and so that was part of their culture. And the same, we look at um, uh, early the period of early Islam, and we see that there were times when Christians and Muslims would worship together in the same place. In the same place, Muhammad um, speaks about going to hear a preacher, one of his favorite preachers in in Himyar. He would go down there and listen to a preacher um, from time from time to time. So it was not unusual for this to take place. But um, about uh, look at this less less than a hundred years after the death of Muhammad, uh, we see um, one of the uh, caliphs, one of the rulers in in Jerusalem, you know, deciding he's going to draw a line in the sand. And so he puts up a little plaque on a dome of a rock and basically says, listen, the true uh, faith is Islam and uh, we believe in Christ, but we don't believe that he is, you know, the um, the son of God, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the line was drawn in the sand. And um, it was probably around that time when um, the Shahada, which is the Muslim uh, profession of faith, was probably adapted too, because apparently from what we learned, the original profession of faith basically said in the Arabic, there is no God but God. But uh, Muslims today will say, that Muhammad is the prophet. And so the part about Muhammad wasn't always there. Okay, but when this line is drawn in the sand, and it's obvious now that um, Islam is becoming as powerful or more powerful uh, than the Catholic Church, because, of course, the Catholic Church, of all the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, I should say, was also growing in strength in another area. And so um, Islam now in the East and North Africa uh, becomes sort of the dominant force, and they've drawn a line in the sand. Uh, we see the development of 
um, the Hadith, the Sunnah. And so it's not just the Quran now, but there are other things that I inform in the faith. And so um, you would hear a lot of Muslims say, for instance, that it wasn't uh, Isaac, but Ishmael who was sacrificed. That's not in the Quran at all. Okay, but you're going to find it in Hadith. Um, you're going to see a lot of things um, that are, you know, uh, pushed back very strongly against Christian doctrine and Christian beliefs that um, are not founded in the Quran, but you can find it in the Hadith. And so we see um, this development, this entrenched development that basically, uh, you know, defines these two faith systems as very, very different. And we look at that, again, we look at the birth of faith systems. The earliest Christians uh, were very much, you know, um, had many practices like the Jewish siblings in a sense. But by the time we get to 85, James Dunn in his book, um, The Partner of the Ways Between Judaism and Christianity, we see that the shape uh, become so distinguished in a sense that uh, they're, they're going different ways. And that's the same with Christianity and Islam. There mm-hmm. comes a time when the differences become so pronounced that it's hard to walk together. It was Amos who said, can two walk together <laughs> unless they agree? And at the point when they can't agree, that's when they go different ways. All right. And then uh, how about Ethiopia? There's a, it started in earlier on, um, yeah. but there was Euro- a struggle for European control of Ethiopia yes. later on. You wrote yeah, something yeah. about that. Yes, yes, yes. And so, again, you know, looking at, um, okay, so we look at modern continental Christianity, all right? Let's say modern continental, what we call Africa today, right? And so we're looking at the Ethiopian expressions, for instance, that started in the fourth century. In the fourth century, there were some Syrian monks um, who were shipwrecked on the shores of Ethiopia. Uh, some of most, most, most were killed, but two got away. They, well, since they got away, two were captured. One was Frumentius. They were taken into the court of the Negus and were given ward over um, the Negus's son. And so the son, he basically, um, you know, uh, became a Christian. And he decided that uh, this is going to be the faith of our people. This is going to be the faith of our people. And so uh, from the fourth century, we see uh, Christianity being the main religion in Ethiopia. By the way, um, to, uh, I guess to the south or the, my my girlfriend, I guess to the south, uh, we also have the Nubian kingdoms um, of Makaria and Nobatia and um, that third one is uh, fleeing my mind right now. And so we, we have these three other centers. In fact, uh, some modern Sudanese, okay, are descended from a Christianity that was in the Sudan, you know, from, again, the third and fourth centuries, right? And so we have this, this uh, entrenched Christianity in this area of Africa around um, Ethiopia and the Sudan, now, for whatever reason, um, we don't see any evidence, at least I've not found any evidence yet, that they were involved in the church councils. We do know that a lot of the Egyptians were had attendees in the major church councils in Nicaea, Chalcedon, and Constantinople, and others. So I haven't found any evidence of Ethiopian presence there. Maybe it's because they were being represented by Egypt, because um, I think even to this day, um, the Ethiopian church, their, their chief 
uh, priest has to be ordained and sanctioned um, from Egypt, from the Coptic church in Egypt. And so it is not what you call autocephalous. And so it does come under uh, the, um, the Egyptian Coptic church, even though the doctrine is considerably different. And so they're basically developing um, in a way that uh, is somewhat untainted by many of the things that are taking place in other areas of the Christian world. And so the type of Christianity they practice was very, um, if I could use the word primitive Christianity in the sense that it still had a lot of its Jewish uh, roots. And so uh, they're very firm on um, Seventh-day Sabbath observance, for instance. And so in other parts of the church, uh, we had the rising of Sunday, uh, but in Ethiopia, it was the Seventh-day Sabbath. Um, they were very careful about um, the foods that they ate. And so they ate kosher, all right? There'd be no um, eating of pork or anything. And in fact, um, they got upset with the Egyptian church because they realized that the Egyptian church has started eating things that they weren't supposed to eat in a sense, right? And so we see that they had this sort of primitive Christianity that they, that, that they held onto. And in fact, they even... Um, reinvented some of the themes of Christianity. And uh, they, they saw, particularly when we come to the era of the um, Zagwe dynasty uh, in Ethiopia, where they imagined Ethiopia to be a new Jerusalem. All right. And so they had different places named after areas uh, in Israel and Palestine. All right. And so they had this independence about them um, that uh, kind of kept them protected, if I could use that term, from different developments in other parts of the Christian world. Here comes the Crusades, <laughs> okay? And the Crusades from the 12th century over the next 400 years or so. In the Crusades, uh, we find that um, Egypt makes some quick alliances uh, with Rome, with the West, etc., because, of course, when... Um, Rome, and of course, we're talking about Rome. It's not just Italy. We're talking about most of the Western churches were, were sort of Roman Catholic in a sense. So the, the French and Richard the Lionheart from England, et cetera, you know, uh, Philip the Fair, et cetera. They're, they're, they're all a part of this as they're coming over to fight the, the Crusades. And, 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 and what, they're, what they're noticing, particularly in the battle for Jerusalem, um, when, when the invaders came, you know, anyone who didn't look like they were from Europe was fair game. And so when the street, <laughs> when the killing took place, the streets were running with bloods, not only of Muslims, but of also Christians and Jews. And the Ethiopians um, who had a place in the church of the um, nativity in Bethlehem were actually expelled. So these, these are Ethiopian priests Okay, and if you go there to this day, you will still see Ethiopian priests there because it was interesting. They were invited back by Saladin when the, when the Muslims the Christians kicked the Christians out. Mm. They said to the Ethiopians, "You you can come back now." They're there to this day, even though if we talk about battlefields for Christians, uh, the church and the nativity is where. Oh my goodness, those priests are fighting all the time. The the Orthodox and the Catholics, they they fight literally fist fights all the time. But anyway, um, your question though, had had to do with um, the European sort of. Uh, penetration into the Ethiopian church. And so here's Ethiopia, a sort of protected and insulated from what's taking place 
in other parts of the Christian world. And um, Egypt, apparently, when the Crusades had take, taken place, you know, they're very careful to raise their hands and say, guys, don't come too far south because we're Christian too, right? Okay. So, so um, that's, 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 uh, was sort of to protect them, even though to the uh, west of Egypt, in the Maghrib, that, that, that area there, you know, you, you, you had a heavier um, Muslim presence in those areas, and they kind of knew that they were on the radar, but they wanted to be protected, right? And this is about a time when Egypt began to change some of their sort of Judaic practices, etc. I guess more to align themselves with the way in which Christianity was practiced in Europe. And so... Um, they uh, basically are trying to make some changes also in Ethiopia and Ethiopia say, no, we don't want to change. This is who we are. Okay. And so um, around the, I guess the 13th or 14th century, uh, we have some uh, Catholic ministers, missionaries, sorry, coming into Ethiopia and, you know, uh, they were embraced as fellow Christians, but they're trying now to change the nature of the Ethiopian church from the inside, particularly as it relates to Sabbath observance, all right? And they're saying, listen, the rest of the Christian world, they do this and you're doing this, it should change, et cetera. That actually caused a civil war. That caused a civil war, all right? And so they were kicked out and everything, you know, uh, kind of held together for a while until about the 16th century, when um, a Muslim, this guy Grand, they call him, that Grand means the left-handed, uh, he was trying to annex Ethiopia, going to the Dar al-Islam, into the Islamic empire. And of course, Muhammad, had, um, he actually wrote and said, listen, leave Ethiopia alone. You know, if you're going to go anywhere, leave it because they were the ones who gave us protection sort of thing. But here's this guy, Grand, who is saying, I'm not going to leave Ethiopia alone. I'm going to annex them in. And so um, the emperor at that time in Ethiopia, he reached out to Europe. He says, come help, help us, please. You know, and so um, Rome sent some folk over. By the time Rome came, Ethiopia had kind of pushed, run back. And so um, the Islamic threat wasn't as bad as it was initially, but they, they, they decided that since the invitation was made, then fine, you know, so the Jesuit missionaries were there and they went into the royal house and they basically persuaded the king uh, to adapt a different, you know, form of Christianity than what the Ethiopians were used to. Another civil war broke out and, um, that civil war came to an end with the Emperor Facilidas, and they basically kicked out the Catholic missionaries and basically said, you know, you guys are welcome here again. And they were actually gone for about two to 200 years, you know, and again, it had to do with the unique nature of the Ethiopian church, particularly as it relates to their practice of, um, you know, observing kosher, Sabbath, etc., the Jewish holy days, etc., is all part um, of what it was all about. And so it wasn't until actually the 19th century that, you know, um, they allowed missionaries from the West to actually come back uh, into that region. And so that was the the struggle for control <laughs> of the Ethiopian church. And, right. and yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, and how about sub-Saharan Africa before <laughs> European missionaries came? What was... Uh, 
the effect of Christianity or the presence of Christianity before the yeah. Europeans? You know, um, much of that, Dennis, is going to be conjecture in the sense that we don't have a lot of literature. We don't have a lot of literature to really tell us um, what exactly was going on, but we're going to surmise based upon things like trade routes. And so because we know that there were trade routes um, going from, you know, um, different areas in the Middle East, you know, into the interior of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, missionary work usually took place along these trade routes, that there may have been some exposure. But again, we don't have any hard evidence as to what that exposure may have been apart from Islam, (laughs) you know? And uh, because we do know that uh, there were some very significant Islamic, um, you know, uh, headways made into uh, sub-Saharan Africa and the kingdoms of Ghana, Soninke, etc. These were uh, Muslim, um, heavily Muslim kingdoms. And uh, even if there were no direct Christian missionaries who preceded uh, these folk who came down, uh, we do know that uh, through Islam, they would have been introduced to figures like Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Solomon, to David, to Jesus. You know, And so if they were introduced to Islam, they would have been introduced to a number of the characters uh, that we, you know, revere in scripture also. Now, um, the slave trade, and this would sort of be a, sort of a, a new introduction, introduction from a different type of Christianity uh, in Africa. And so we're going now about the 14th century now, okay, with the, pap- the papal bulls of um, uh, Martin V and Nicholas V, and you know there are a whole bunch of actually four fifths who put these bulls out, right? And 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 um, around that time, a lot of it was done in the name of of, of missions. Okay, so they would go and say, okay, we're going to claim these lands for Christ in a sense. And um, later on, you would hear the slogan Christianity and commerce. And so yes, there was this emphasis on. On, on, on a sort of claim of the lands for Christ and Christianity. And so what, what we have, particularly the Portuguese and um, their uh, missionary work, quote-unquote, in the places like the Congo, etc., we see that there were some African kings uh, who were uh, pretty much open to what was being taught. And so, um, like, in the Congo, a whole... I mean, a big slew of the, pop- the, the population embraced Catholic Christianity. Okay, so um, uh, Henry Louis Gates in his recent work, um, The Black Church. In fact, I think I have it just behind me over here, but yeah, uh, on, 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 on The Black Church, um, he, he estimates that maybe about 20% of the enslaved people who were taken to the Americas were already um, Christian were already Christian, that had been Catholic Christian. And in fact, there were other sources where, where you can actually read about some of them because they're being exposed in some areas to sort of an Anglicized form of Christianity from the Anglican Church, which became the Episcopalian Church. Uh, but they, of course, were Catholics, you know. And so they um, felt, some of them felt they were, they were apostatizing if they became Anglican because, of course, they belonged to the quote-unquote Mother Church. And so it's, a again, so there's a period where we don't have much documentation. We can only surmise based on trade routes um, that there would have been an exposure of certain people to Christianity. 
Um, but then we do know definitely uh, through Islam, even though they're introduced to Islam, they would have been introduced to the characters of Christianity and Judaism from scripture. But definitely by the time we get to the 14th and 15th century, uh, we see uh, with the catalyzation of certain areas um, uh, in the Congo and um, Southwest Africa, et cetera. And also later on in East Africa, um, that uh, folk would have been embracing uh, more of the Western manifestations of Christianity rather than the indigenized forms that came from Ethiopia and the Sudan. So once we get to the actual period of colonization yeah. um, and the missionary work of the 19th century, what is key for us to understand? And the question is, did any of those missionaries do it right? I mean, it's easy to look back and say, you know, they all did it wrong. It was all oppressive. Uh-huh. And But what are your thoughts? Yeah. You know, what's, what's, what's interesting, the names of the missionaries that did it right, you really don't know in the sense that, you know, of course, we all heard about Dr. Livingston, right? You know, um, Livingston, he was, he was an explorer also, a missionary. And what's interesting, we hear his name a lot, but apparently... Um, I think it was Walls who said that he had one convert, you know, and that convert later apostatized, you know. And so we have that. But when we look at the mission schools, the mission schools, and particularly the one founded in in South South Africa, um, Fort Hare, Fort Hare University or Fort Hare College it was back then, now Fort Hare University. Um, This was a school that uh, produced um, a number of African leaders who went on uh, to um, lead the uh, fight for African liberation in the sense of uh, those who gained their independence from England and other places. And so we're looking at people like Nyere um, of, uh, what was Nyere? It was at Tanzania. Um, we're looking at, um, well, Nelson Mandela uh, was also, um, you know, uh, graduate of that school. Um, uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu was a graduate of that school. Uh, Joshua Unkoma and Mugabe, even though Mugabe, you know, and, and, and I know in, in, in my book, I speak about the illustrious, you know, leaders, et cetera. And, and I just put all the names there without even thinking about, you know, that, and, and now in one of the reviews, I was like, how in the world could we put Mugabe amongst the illustrious, you know, he's a, but anyway, he was, he was also um, one of the graduates. And of course he, along with Onkomo, um, led the fight for independence in Zimbabwe against the um, Ian Smith Rhodesian regime, etc. And so, so we see that even though there are obvious indications of um, exploitation, I still remember on the campus of Seleucia University, I was there doing some lectures back in, I think it was 1999. And um, they had me in a home, it was a about 2,500 square feet home by myself, right? Um, right there. And, uh, but there were some other homes in another area that were larger and some other homes that were smaller. And these were all on the campus. And so I, I, I asked someone one day about the home. Can you explain these homes to me? And they said, well, the homes over there, the ones that are like 4,000 square feet, those, the, the, those are the ones where the missionaries used to live. You know, and then the small homes where the natives lived. So I said, "What about the, like the ones I'm, I'm staying with? That's a pretty size, good sized house." And they said, "Well, um, we had um, a native who went on and went went to London and got a degree, 
and came back. And the missionary says, well, he can't live with us and he can't live with them. And so they built another <laughs> house, you know. And then I noticed the cemetery in the middle of the campus, a well-kept cemetery. Looked at the names. They were like John Smith, David Bates, et cetera. I said, who's, who's buried here? They said, the missionaries. So I said, where's everyone else buried? And they took me to a place way on the back of campus. And I was like, wow, you know. But having said that, you know, from that university, there have been many people because it's there. So even though the example wouldn't be what I would call an example that Christ would endorse, the fact that something was done that is helping to elevate generations after, I don't think we can take away from that. That's a positive thing. All right. And uh, can you talk more about the explosive growth of Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa in the last um, several decades, including the independent African churches? Yes. You know, um, Philip Jenkins and Chris Christen and also Andrew Walls in his work, they um, basically share, and I can go to Elizabeth C.K. and others who've written, who've, who've, who've written on this, but... Um, you know, we we see this sort of refreshing taking place. And I use that word lightly, but I'm using it in an evangelistic sense, yeah? And so as we look at what's taking place in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, in fact, in the entire global south, in the entire global south, uh, we see this new energizing of um, Christianity, even as Christianity, Christianity seems to be waning in the West, all right? So this, this strange thing's taking place in these two hemispheres. And one of the reasons we see for this um, surging of Christianity in these areas is the indigenization, we find it the indigenization, where uh, we have uh, what some call the African prophets, people like Shember and others, um, who are basically saying, listen, um, the imposed European version of Christianity we don't really like that. So let's find ways in which we can indigenize Christianity and um, sort of, you know, uh, mold some of our traditions into what we do so that it can be meaningful for us. And so for many of them, uh, to be a Christian meant to sort of give up your identity. I was at a conference a couple of years ago in, in Kenya and, um, there was an African professor there. Now, he actually teaches in Seton Hall over here right now. But he grew up in Ghana. I think he was a Lutheran. But he, he, he grew up in Ghana. And he says when he grew up, the saying was that if you were on your way to church on a Sunday morning and you saw a white person, you could turn around and go home because you've already seen Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. And so that that is the depth of um, how some people would have resisted Christianity, seen it as a tool of the colonizer and saying, hey, you know, um, this is not for us. And so I think a lot of the indigenous leaders um, who uh, became the founders of what we call the IACC, the Independent African Christian Churches, they said, okay, listen, we need, we need a Christian that's, that's to us. And it's a Christian that, that recognizes the role of culture in Christianity. You know, there are a lot of people, I hear people all the time say, no, there should be no culture in Christianity. Well, you know, <laughs> we, we are cultural beings. There's always going to be culture, right? And so they basically are saying, okay, what aspects 
of African culture uh, can we have um, in the way in which we practice Christianity? And so we see, um, you know, again, this, this massive resurgence until uh, we get to a point where um, both Walls and Jenkins estimate that, you know, but, well, in fact, they, they, they said by 2020, and I haven't checked the numbers. This is about five years ago. They said by 2020, you know, the majority of Christians on the planet, they said, will be actually in the global South, um, a large percentage in um <clears throat> In, 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 in Africa. And so we, we, we see that take, take, take place. Um, I'm, I'm a little more critical as I look at growth because yes, uh, we can look at growth in terms of numbers, you know, and from a numbers perspective, we do see this proliferation, this exponential growth is there, you know, but um, I'm always challenged with qualitative growth. And in other places, for instance, I've challenged um the way in which we measure Christian success. For instance, I think I mentioned it in the book, if not, I've published it somewhere else, but um, Rwanda for the Belgians was the pinnacle of missionary success. Over 90% of the people professing Christianity. But we know what happened after 1993. We know what happened. So is this the Christianity we we really want to celebrate? You know, a lot of the mega churches that we have today in Nigeria, there are mega churches, 20, 25,000 people coming out every Sunday. You know, some of the richest men in Nigeria are pastors. Our pastors, yes. You know, but if you look at the way in which the manipulation is taking place, et cetera, you know, there was. um, a group in South Africa where this, this, this Christian leader had the people in the back eating grass. They were literally like cows eating grass. You know, and, and in my mind, I'm saying, okay, the numbers, yeah, are there, but is this what we really want to celebrate? Is this really reflecting the movement that Jesus Christ left behind? Well, do you see a renewal movement in the African churches that is actually about discipleship and true worship? Or what, what do you see in terms of quality on the good side? Yeah, so on the on the good side, and I'm I'm thinking about some things I've seen in Ghana, where where young people are kind of, you know, and and I don't know if this movement has a name because, um, you know, there are times when that's when movements begin to disintegrate when they get a name, right? Okay, but um, there are some young people who are thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, what does it mean uh, to help the least of these? What does it mean? to live how Christ lived, et cetera. And so I see some of these. And so this is sort of an anecdotal type thing that I've seen myself and visit in different areas. Some, some, some people who have been sort of serious about the message of the gospel, you know? And so, yes, um, I, I don't want to uh, put any motivation on the many people who are coming uh, to the church even with the theatrics in a sense. And I think that's a good thing because being in the space, being in the area in the same way, how uh, we see that even though some of the missionary decisions may have been destructive, um, there were some things that were left in place that, be, that acted as a foundation for liberation. And that's what I hope for Africa today. That's what I hope for Africa today, that even as you see those who may be seriously concerned with making a real difference in society, and you see others 
who see some of the commercial benefit of Christianity, you know, as they look at, for instance, and again, what we do over here influences a lot of what takes place over there, right? And so they've seen um, what is being done over here and saying, hey, we can do it better, uh, sort of thing. But hopefully, as Paul said, and even Jesus himself, when uh, people uh, were casting out demons, you know, and, and, and he basically said, listen, you know, if it's working, that it works sort of thing. And Paul, he's basically saying, hey, you know, um, they're preaching Christ. May not preach Christ the same way I, I preach Christ, but I'm just glad that Christ is being preached. And so ultimately, even as we assess things through a critical lens, I'm glad that Christ is being preached. All right. And uh, next question, actually, we're going back a ways. Um, the curse of Ham, it's been mm. interpreted in various ways. Various myths have uh, come about because of that. So what's the history of that and how has it really affected people? And what is your what is your counter to that? Yeah, uh, my good friend, um, Dr. Benun Diop, um, he's the uh, Adventist representative to the United Nations. Um, he he presented an interesting paper some years ago um, at a conference that we both presented, and it was simply titled The Autopsy of a Mythical Curse, right? And so we so easily talk about the curse of Ham, but again, there's no way in the Bible that uses that term, you know? So Genesis chapter 9 speaks of an incident in a very few verses where Noah... Um, experiments with grapes and didn't realize if you leave it on the ledge too long, it's going to turn into, you know, um, I guess some sort of Sauvignon or something. Okay, so he drinks a little bit too much, gets drunk. And the text simply says that his son Ham saw him naked, came out, told his brothers, his brothers backed up, covered him. When Noah awoke from his wakeness and found out what his son Ham had done. And these are the exact words from Genesis 9, 25 through 27. I'm not going to say the exact words because I'm not going to quote the Hebrew, but it's just like, you know. And so he basically says, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Blessed be Shem. And he speaks about Shem making, making her tents in the territory of Canaan and Japheth living in the tents of Shem in the land of Canaan. Mm. So what's taken place here? Well, first of all, from the standpoint of the story itself, here's um, a, an honor and shame society because there are many, many people. In fact, let me back up from there even before I give my explanation. So how does the curse of Canaan become the curse of Ham? Uh, we do know that there was something in the Jerusalem Talmud, Talmud, I think they, they didn't back to me about the 4th or the 5th century, uh, where some of the rabbinic Haggadah, uh, when they look at what this curse is all about, um, turned it into something uh, racial, you know? And um, it's, it, 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 it has Noah saying things that we don't find in the scripture. So Noah's saying, because you extended your lips or something, your lips shall be bloated, and because you um, twisted your neck, your hair shall become curly, etc. You know, and 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 so all these these manifestations that sort of form the foundation 
to this racist interpretation, things that are not in the text. Primarily because, first of all, the Bible doesn't say that Noah said, cursed be Ham. The Bible is very clear, cursed be Canaan. And that's the only place we read about that. Nowhere else in the scripture is it expounded on, right? And so we see the narrative, going back to, to where I was before. So we see the narrative, right, of what actually took place. And it's pretty straightforward. And we're scratching our head because the big question is, why did Noah curse Canaan? Why did Noah curse Canaan, right? And so there are many theories out there. And again, um, you know, we see what took place in the Talmud and how they're explaining in the Jerusalem Talmud. Other people are saying, well, based upon this particular Hebrew, Hebrew word, um, he, un- he uncovered the naked of his mother. So um, Ham had sex with his mother and Canaan was their child. You know, there are all kinds of theories behind this. All kinds of theories behind this, right? But um, how, how I see it is, listen, theoretically, yes. And that's the only thing that we can do when we seek to answer the question, why did Noah curse Canaan? Um, I'm looking at it through the lens of honor and shame. When these societies dealt with honor and shame. And so it was shameful, it was dishonorable for his father to see, for his son, sorry, to see his father naked. The Bible says that Ham saw his father naked. What did Ham do? Ham came out and told his brothers. His brothers covered the father, right? Ham wasn't a part of that. Why? Because Ham was embarrassed. He was shamed. He had done. He had seen something that he should not have seen. The father, by by the way, this is this is a guy who is still hungover. He's just waking up. He's still hungover, right? Okay, and so he makes this pronouncement. He makes this pronouncement. Now, in the blessing of Africa, I refer to it as a prophetic curse. And um, a prophetic curse in the sense that what Noah is doing here as we utter it, and um, I'm not sure what perspective your listeners are coming from, but I'm coming from the perspective that, you know, somehow the Holy Spirit works mysteriously through the words of the scripture, right? And so um, as he utters this, maybe even unbeknownst to him, what he's doing He's prophesying a reality about what's going to take place in the territory of Canaan, all right? And so in this territory of Canaan, this territory, this land space, he says, a servant of servants he shall be to his brother. So in Canaan, if we look back throughout history, there was a time when at least um, two dynasties, two Egyptian dynasties, annexed Canaan. Who is Egypt? Egypt is one of the brothers of Canaan. Right? And so a servant of servants. And then we see um, Cush. Remember the Assyrians and the Babylonians from Nimrod, the son of Cush. Right? So they also annexed Canaan under the Babylonians and, and, and the Assyrians. A servant of servants, this land shall be to his brothers. And even the Philistines, as I mentioned earlier, they're from the Kasnahites, descended from Egypt, and they were permanently there. The land served them too. And it says Shem, blessed be Shem, Shem is going to pitch her tents in the land of Canaan. 
So we see what happened um, with the Israelites, Shem, from Abraham, from Abraham, from Abraham, all right? And also the Elamites, that's Persia, okay? Who is Japheth? Well, Japheth, if you look at the um, progeny of, or rather the, the, the descendants of Japheth, you know, it seems to be a lot of them settled in, 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 in Europe, okay? Joktan and others in Europe. And so we see Japheth living in the tents of Shem in the land of Canaan. And so we're looking at the Greeks and the Romans, etc. And to this very day, that geographical area is a hotbed of conflict. And so looking looking through spiritual eyes, and so I could look strictly through scholarly eyes, and of course, this wouldn't work in a scholarly meeting. (laughs) Okay, if I'm if 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 I'm doing an exegetical paper, hermeneutics, etc., this is not going to work because you know we just want to look. Okay, so what does the text say? What do you see in in the text? But from sort of a um, a, a, a theological prophetic perspective, from one who believes that the Spirit does leave messages in the Scripture for those of us of later generations, you know, I see this um, as a basic prediction of what's going to take place in the territory uh, that today we call Israel, Palestine, Syria, etc. Okay, so just telling the story of actually what happened to Cain, Canaan and his descendants and focusing the curse on Canaan tells the true story about that it's not about Ham and it's not about being black. Mm-mm. So, yeah, it's very disturbing how it ha- has turned out, though, justified so much oppression yeah unfortunately Mm -hmm. so finally what is significant about current african theologians um what are uh, current african theologians writing about um what's the practice they're emphasizing Um, what's significant or even controversial there Okay. So, of course, when we look at um, theology in Africa today, there are some interesting groups um, in Society of Biblical lit- Literature, uh, at least one, one, one seminar of African theology. Um, I'm involved with something called the Transatlantic Roundtable on Religion and Race, and uh, we met a couple of years ago in Kenya, and um, there were some uh, African thought leaders and shapers there. And some of, a, a lot of what's taken place now um, there's, of course, traditional um, theology take in place, you know, in the sense of using um, the conventional, um, uh, what word am I looking for? It's sort of the, the conventional themes, investigating some of the conventional themes that we're going to find in uh, standard European theology, etc. You know, but then there are others um, who may have embraced more of a, a post-colonial approach where they're taking a look at things through fresh eyes, okay? And um, thinking, for instance, of uh, Temba Mathiko, and um, I'm going to refer to an article you wrote about 20 years ago, uh, where he dealt with um, African ancestor worship, for instance, or what um, people call African ancestor worship, and comparing it uh, to different passages in the Hebrew Bible where we see them praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what he's basically saying is that it may seem like they worship the ancestors, but they worship really the God of the ancestors. And so just finding ways in which, you know, um, uh, new eyes, African eyes, 
can take a look at the text and provide um, alt alternative understandings that may, you know, stand up to scrutiny uh, with the wider scholarly audience. Because, again, I think it's important uh, whenever scholarship is done that um, particularly biblical scholarship should not be sociology and should not be sort of um, uh, ethnocentric, egoistic readings of the text where we only see ourselves in the text. But even as I wrote this book, for instance, uh, my aim was to write in a way that um, anyone can read and see, but it's not just written for one audience, but for all audiences. And as I look at what's taking place in African theology now, particularly African theologians, because, you know, there's African-American theology and there's Black theology, of course, uh, we have African theology, you know, um, it seems as if that this uh, interest is there, Tem Mifiko and others who uh, want to write in a way where they're taking their African eyes to look at these biblical stories so that others who may be looking from their own eyes, whether they're Asian eyes or European eyes, can look and say, aha, uh -huh, I see. All righty. Okay, wow, we've covered a lot of ground today, a lot of centuries. So I'm Dennis Messler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Keith, Keith Augustus Burton. And uh, you can check out his book. Follow the link below. It's The Blessing of Africa, The Bible, and African Christianity. So, uh, Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dennis. All right. Peace to everyone.